Sometimes when uh, people come to um, a, a spiritual place, a monastery or temple or, or whatever, you know, they come because they're really seeking something, really seeking to know. Sometimes when we come to uh, a place like this, we come because of, of really seeking and really desiring to know something, really desiring to uproot our suffering and recognizing that either we, there's some information missing that if I had it, I could do, uh, I could do better in how I walk out my life, or uh, because we have regret for how we are, are living or because we think that there is a better way, there is something that we can do that uh, decreases our suffering and also causes us or enables us to not cause suffering for, for others. And so we seek out a place such as this. But then sometimes the, you know, we want to get delivered to us in baby talk, except that we're not babies. And so we should be able to carry something, to hold something, and just siphon from that the information that we need, let the rest of it fall by the wayside. And it's only, you know, a gajillion times that we can say that it's not personal. You know, and so if we're taking it personal, then then we have to uh, work at our our uh, our sense of our personal pain and our personal story, our personal drama around something is what's causing the uh, uh, what is causing the discomfort or the dukkha within us. And if and right there is the point or the place of our freedom that we can can be free from what torments us when we recognize it's our perception of what's happening based on our reasoning, which we already know is faulty, which is why we've come in to try to, to get something else, uh, extra to add to our, our knowledge and our understanding. You know, and so we just ask you to hold all of this loosely. What normally happens is when a person like gets that that owie, you know, when the when the fire gets too hot under their feet, they run. That's what they do. That's the M.O. Cannot, uh, and instead of being a, cannot stay, cannot tolerate it uh, when you get too close to the truth. And some of that has to do with our sense of a personal self and our ego-centric uh, nature, which is what's calling, causing all of our suffering. We don't have to give up everything. We don't have to stop uh, going places. We don't have to stop doing things. We don't have to stop having relationships. We don't have to stop living. What the practice points us to, however, is if we lay the ax to the root of being at the central part of our life, that egocentric nature, what we will find is that we can enjoy things or we can tolerate things that are not pleasant and it never rolls back on us as being personal uh, because we have uh, uprooted or given up the conceit I. That's where all of our trouble comes. I can give up the cars, the house, the land, the, the, the lovers, you got the children, I can give up. I can give up all of those things or I can just give up one thing and that is uh, this uh, sense of a separate eye and, and wanting the whole world to bow down, uh, bow down to me. That's the point of our suffering. And if we could just see that and just gradually, like every time it rears its head, <laughs> I see you, you know, just thinking not me, not mine, not myself, just thinking in that way will gradually shift our thinking so that we can be somewhere without thinking I am here. We can do something without thinking I am doing. We can, you know, we can find a way of, of living and moving and being in the world that is actually carefree. And now, 
I'm not saying that because I'm 100% there. You know, I'm, I, I encounter the same vicissitudes of life that everybody in this room encounters. But on the basis of the things that I have overcome, I can believe that statement, that if I abandon, uproot, you know, cast aside being at the center of my life, with all things having to roll through me to my satisfaction, or I'm going to be disturbed, I'm going to be upset, I'm going to be unhappy, I'm going to be sad, I'm going to be mad, I'm going to be, you know, then I can uh, walk this path and, and look forward, really look forward to every little bit, every little chunk, every little morsel of information I can get that will help uproot my ignorance ergo uproot my suffering. And that's the purpose of us uh, coming to a place like this, to learn these things and apply it to the extent that we can. Now, it also means that we have to have the patience to recognize that everybody else is coming for the same reason. And so uh, we can then consider others as oneself. And so if I'm having a bad hair day, then uh, you can understand it because yesterday you had one. And I was, uh, I recognized that you were having that day and I tolerated it. I don't have to think that every time someone comes by and says something to me and it may be a little sharp, it may be a little uh, uh, dismissive or, or whatever. I like that's, I mean, they're in their head. What does that really to do with me? You know, and if we start thinking that way, we won't be so sensitive to things. And actually, we can, like, grow up and wear the high heel shoes. You know how when we were children, we'd walk around, I don't care if we're girl, boy, whatever. We would always get mommy's shoes out of the closet and click around in the high heel shoes, you know. And uh, that's just our, our desire to grow up and be mature, not lacking in any good thing. But we have to be strong enough to uh, tolerate uh, the meat of the Dharma and we have to be respectful otherwise we'll not be able to get anything. So I wanted to share with you a little bit today from the Suryangama Sutra. Uh, it's a Mahayana text and uh, it's actually going to be um, on uh, ten causes and effects of our suffering. And the reason why I want to talk about this is because um, uh, truly seeing what causes dukkha and its pervasiveness is what's fundamental for our freedom. It's what's fundamental for our release. It's what's uh, fundamental for, for us to overcome or uh, be able to handle the issues of life and not be overcome by those issues of life. Uh, and often we define dukkha as only the negative things, you know. But, you know, the Buddha said that when uh, I have uh, 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 unbeneficial thoughts, when I have negative thoughts, when sad situations come into my life, my mind is agitated. But he said on the other side, when I get everything I want, when things are going well and I'm like happy, the mind is still agitated. And so he says not to think only in terms of, of what we don't like, 
but also in terms of what we do like because we're trapped in our suffering both from things we don't like or and things that we do like and so um, uh, there's this middle way that he encourages us to come to and points us to. Now my middle way is not necessarily your middle way. And so as a, as a teacher, I have to cover the whole gamut and you have to figure out for yourself what is the middle path for you. First you gotta know what your obstacle is. You know, you can have like a, um, uh, let's say a, a, a broken fingernail. Not all the way down at the quick, cause that can be really painful, you know, but like I don't know how you work on your computer. Just hold your hand up. She was talking about all the time she's, <laughs> that she sp spends on, and I don't mean like she's got fingernails, I don't get it. Um, my hat is off to you. I'm impressed. Uh, yeah. And so, and, but there are these times that, that things come into our life and, and it's pleasurable. There is a privilege associated with it. There is getting what we want, you know. But if we can uh, see that in that is also the seed of, of suffering, then it will uh, point us in the direction of how to minimize that, how to work with that. You know, I'm, I am undergoing a tremendous challenge at this time. I, Panyadipa is not well. Um, and I would like to spend as much time with Panyadipa as I can. But I, 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 got, I have work I have to do. Then, you know, uh, I have a responsibility, not just to Panyadipa, but I have a responsibility to everybody here. I have one to you. Do you have a mutual one to me? That's a question. The only thing that you can offer me, well, two things. One is to do well in your practice. That's worth the sacrifice of my life. The second is to preserve uh, and, and develop and maintain and support what supports you in your life. Those two things, that's the only thing that you can offer. The only thing I can offer is how I live my life in front of you. When the vicissitudes come and hit me, how, how I live my life you know, in front of you and, and how true I stay to the Dharma. You know, a lot of people come in and they want to do some of this and they want to do some of that. And, and I'll say, okay, let's do some of this. And some people say, like, I'm not interested in that. I only want to meditate. I only want, well, then you can go in your room and meditate. You know, don't deprive another one of some level of joy that will draw them uh, further into the practice. I, I called my master. Uh, he's dead now, but... Um, and I said to him when we first came here in uh, 2005, I said, these people are not serious. You know, I'm looking for the serious. You know, he said, forget about the serious. Focus on the curious. And he hung up the phone. That's all he said to me. He left me to deal with it, you know. Uh, and, and I had to unpack that. You know, you know how it is when you first come out of the monastery. You're like all prim and proper. You're like, you know, like, you're like quoting texts all the time. You know, it doesn't really have a relationship to your life because you're not living any kind of life except you try to do what the book says. And so, and so, uh, and, and that's the way that we were teaching. Some of us were, uh, were here when, when we started, like Bob. Bob knows how it was, you know. And so, but over the time, uh, over the years, we found ourselves and our ex, ex, uh, expression of the Dharma that is real to us. Me and Deepa is different as night and day. 
uh, and yet we embrace the same the same dharma and the same and the same truths. And so it doesn't always have to look the same. It doesn't have to sound the same. You know, but if it's the true Dharma, it is the same, but it's spoken in many different ways so that many different kinds of minds can apprehend it. And we don't have to get the whole ball of wax. All we need to know is how to make the next step, how to take the next step. That's all. Or if we stumble or we've fallen, how do I get up? What do I lean on in this moment? And sometimes the answer uh, the answer is never the same for every situation, but sometimes it's yes, get up. Sometimes it's stay down there. Sometimes it's lean on the chair to get up. And sometimes it's use your muscles and pull yourself up. You got to know which one is called for now. And unfortunately, the only way you know that is through experience. It's through experience. Like we want the prize at the end, but we got to go through the gradual process of training. And we say, like, I'm 60 years old, I'm 70 years old, I'm 80 years old, I'm tired of studying, I'm tired of learning, I don't want, I don't want to do this. Well, then that's okay. Enjoy. You know, when I was uh, younger, I came to a conclusion that, uh, you know, because I was always committing some kind of, of infraction you know, doing bad in the church. And like every Sunday, when I come in, the pastor would preach it on me. Uh, I knew she was. I mean, you know, like my feet would be burning every week. One day I said, you know what, you need to find somebody else to pick on, you know. And she was like, what? You know, but I felt like every sermon was about me because I was like doing just about everything that she talked about all the time. You know, and so, and, but then I realized that it wasn't that. That, that, you know, I was condemning myself. I mean, because I saw that. And, and I would say, um, I, you know, if I'm going to go to hell because, you know, then I'm going to go out full throttle. I'm not going to go to hell over no little infraction. I'm going to just, I'm going to do it big time. And, and so that's what I would do. So I'd have my times of being in the church, you know. And then when I was like, this is going to be a little too much. I need a sister, need to step out for a minute. I'd jump out and I'd go way out. I'd go out all the way. And then when I'd gotten like so bogged down in my debauchery and my suffering, I come crawling back to Jesus. I come crawling back to church. And, and I get all patched up and all all fixed up again, you know. But now I find over the years that it was not in vain, you know, and that it, at the right time, and the appointed time is when one decides. When I decided, you know, which side I was on, when I decided what was important to me, what mattered to me, then all the lessons that I had learned, the ones that were pleasurable and the ones that were not pleasurable, begin to instruct me from the inside out in how to live and move and have my being in the world. And so uh, that's what the, uh, and, and I love the Dharma because I find the Dharma, I went through, I don't know, I think about 12 different spiritual disciplines over my life. And every time I would go through one, and at some point I'd reach a glass ceiling. You know, I just, I could either, I, I couldn't understand it, it didn't make sense, or it didn't go high enough. It didn't, uh, you know, it, the medicine, I needed something stronger. 
And so, but what I love about the Dharma is I can find everything that I learned here in the Dharma, and I can know what level it's on. So I know if I'm taking baby steps, if I'm taking mama steps, if I'm taking daddy steps, I can know, and we can know this. This is what gives us confidence in our walk and in our practice, that we're not uh, victims to what other people think, or not victims to what other people say, or not victims to that paragraph I just read in the book. But from the inside out, I can know exactly where I am at any time. And so even when I'm falling short, I still have confidence. And uh, because I know where I am, if Dharma can find me, I'm not lost. You know, our great fear is of being lost. But if Dharma can find me, I'm not lost. And so that's my caveat for what I'm going to talk about over the next uh, 15 minutes. And he said that these are the things that we should pay attention to. And how this, uh, it is said that this teaching came about was that uh, Ananda and a group of monks were out and they were on arms rounds and, you know, they kind of stayed together as a group to mutually support each other. They'd go into town and if someone asked for a teaching, they'd give a teaching. And so some of them would group together to just support the container, the atmosphere, uh, with their own realization, with their, their own aspiration, um, and with their own interest and uh, a desire for spiritual attainment. And so, but Ananda, uh, as they were leaving, Ananda didn't leave the village. And it says that uh, he decided he would go for alms rounds and he would like to stop at the first house. But the first house was a brothel. And uh, so uh, a woman came out and um, uh, to make the offering, but she was, uh, as she was handing him the offering, she touched him, and um, and uh, sensual desire, sexual desire, arose in Ananda, and it scared him so bad, he dropped the food and he ran back and he caught up with the group, and so uh, the, it said that the Buddha, with his all-seeing eyes, saw this situation, and he came back and he gave a teaching. Uh, to Ananda Round. Now that might be a true story, might not be a true story, but it's a good story for learning a lesson. And so uh, he started talking about our habits. And, um, and we should know, we should know our habits. That's the first thing, a lot of us don't know them. Um, but then when we know them, we should do something about them. And sometimes we don't know what to do uh, about them, and that's where instruction and the teaching uh, comes in. Now he says that everything that comes to our mind comes to our mind through uh, one of the consciousnesses. And uh, in the uh, original teachings of the Buddha, he talks about mind in different ways. He talks about cheetah, he talks about uh, manas, he talks about vijjana. And, and in um, later teachings, in the Mahayana teachings, they broke that down to, you know, the, the sixth sense consciousnesses, you know, things that come in through the eye, ear, nose, tongue, uh, and body consciousness, connected to the mind, uh, which is uh, 
uh, our projections based on experiences that we've had before or, you know, how we're feeling right now, what we think has happened. And these six consciousnesses then create our map of reality. Now, when they get all combined, you know, they produce what in Mahayana they call a seventh consciousness, the Kalesa consciousness, or the diluted consciousness, because we see in part and we know in part. Um, and so that creates uh, our projection of what is happening, what is happening right now. So I was talking with someone yesterday, and he said that someone uh, was upset, but they, he thought that they were upset with him, you know. And so he reacted to that, and they weren't upset with him. They were upset, but not with him, you know. And so, so he was so relieved to know, you know, because now his mind has run off, it's weaved a story, you know, it's took, it's he, he, he took a few words that were said, he, he made something out of that, and now he has this whole story about what happened yesterday that he wanted to call and tell me about, you know. And I'm saying, see, it wasn't even like that at all. He said, it wasn't? I said, no. I mean, like, you're not the center of the universe. Every time you come across somebody, they're not thinking about you, you know. That's something in your own mind. You have to uproot that, you know. And, uh, and so we talked and we talked and talked about it. I'm through talking about it now, bye, you know, because that's another way we, like, just kind of quietly reinforcing the opinion we had in the beginning, right? And so... Uh, so this is, this is that consciousness that ends up being diluted because we have partial information and we weave a story around it. Even when we're listening to somebody, the, the scientists say that we don't hear every word they say. Like the mind just gets too bored with yop yop. So it just hops over every few words or even every few sentences and it just makes its own story about what you talked about. And so this is, this is how the, uh, this, this mechanism works. And so it says then that from these seven consciousnesses come uh, seeds. And these seeds form the basis of the rebirth linking consciousness. They get stored into the uh, Alaya consciousness. And when there is the dissolution of this body, the forward momentum then of those seeds will find its rightful place of expression with another host. And so that's why we come into this world with certain propensities, with certain characteristics, with certain kinds of behaviors. And they're like, where'd she get that from? You know, she's six months old and she's doing that. He's two years old and he's a virtuoso, you know, violinist. He's, a, you know, where, where does this come from? Did God say, oh, I'm going to give him smarts, I'm going to give her beauty. Let's see. I don't like that one that I'm making right there. Uh, you know, it's, it's not like that. And so, so we have to have another way of understanding, even coming into being. And we don't have to have all the information on it, because if one were to tell you from their own experience, uh, could you believe it? No, but so if we just start from where we are, right in this moment, and what came before that. Grasping and taking hold of what we can reasonably understand. That's enough. That's enough to give us confidence about how to transform ourselves. We talk about the transformation. That's the grace. 
because we have to do this work for ourselves. And if we know we have to do that, if we're not going to get a dispensation and woo, everything is all cleared up and now, you know, I'm enlightened. We want those enlightenment moments, but, you know, enlightenment moments are great. And they take great effort to be positioned so that they can catch, so that you can catch it when it goes by. You know, sometimes we're having enlightenment moments and we don't even recognize it because we're not looking for it or, we're, or if we're looking for it but we have the wrong understanding around it and, or if we, uh, we capture it but because our minds are, are so bogged down with uh, rudimentary um, thinking that we, we, it goes by so quick. I mean, sometimes you have like this uh, great insight, you know, and you say, I just, this was so wonderful. And by the time you get to work and get ready to tell somebody, you can't even remember what it was. It's like it just skipped your memory. We can't even hold it because we have so much other stuff in there. And so he gives us uh, some ideas of what these things are and what we have to, what we have to look at to uproot, um, to uproot it. So the Buddha likens this Dharma to medicine. And it's not a, a uh, take it, take all, or take everything. Formula. We need specific medicines for specific kinds of illnesses that have various levels, you know, of severity in 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 specific individuals. In other words, like we need a prescription. So if you could think of the Dharma in that way, not in a, a common, you know, catch-all like over-the-counter medicine, but like. Uh, but we need a prescription. And then we find ourselves in a situation that when you have to get a prescription from a doctor, you know, a doctor's not perfect either. So you're getting uh, maybe a perfect uh, prescription coming from or through the mind stream of an imperfect doctor. I mean, so there's some complexities to this thing, you know. And so um, we have to commit first to trying the medicine. You know, I'm calling Banya Deepa's doctor today. I'm saying, this you got him on right here? I'm, I'm taking him off of that. You know, he's probably going to say to me, like, I can't talk to you. I have to talk to him. I'm like, no, I'm making this decision. I'm, I'm just telling you. So if it has to be decreased incrementally, you need to tell us now how to de decrease it. Uh, because he's not going to be able to choose whether to stay on that medicine or not. Because the medicine is having side effects that, of, that affect his capacity to make that decision. So, so, uh, you know, so I know I'm going to have this issue with this doctor, but I will, I will, I will handle that. But he said it, it's like that. So, so sometimes there arises not a firm conviction, you know, of, of knowing uh, what you need. But when there does arise a firm conviction, then you stick with that. Even if the doctor feels like it's not the right thing for you, you know, put it to the test. If it didn't work so good with it, try without it. If, if it worked better with it, but it wasn't perfect, maybe you should go back to it. You know, and so it's through this trial and error that we learn and that we grow and that we develop. So he said that there are these things, there's lust, there's craving, there's anger, there's arrogance, there's deceitfulness, there's lying, there's uh, wrong views, there's, I can't read my writing, uh, there's the habit of unfairness, of disputing, uh, there is the habit of resentment. 
And he said that these 10 produce in us an inability when we sit on the pillow to be able to make any progress in our meditation. He said, and we need to know which of these 10 it is for me. And uh, some of us have all 10, you know, but which one uh, is rising up now? We can figure that out when we get still, when we start stepping away. It like me, it starts rearing its ugly head. It starts invading our thoughts and consuming our time and, and, and sapping our energy. And so he says, that's the one that you need to focus on. And sometimes we have five things you can't work on, five things at a time. Just work on one thing. And when you make a little progress with that one, that gives you the courage to look at that other one and say, not yet, but your time is coming. You know, and just continue to work on that one until you have a degree of confidence, you know, in your own ability to manage your life and live as you wish to live. And so he talks about uh, sensual desire uh, the kind of lust and greed that grows into a habit because of the things that we have and because of those who have come into our life and who fulfill our agendas and our preferences. And so here's an example of what is pleasurable. No. Being, uh, being in relationship with someone that you love and someone that's your partner. And he says, I want you to see how clearly it sets up a, 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 a process, a manner, a way of living that's uh, inequitable. That they're your special ones and then you have your not special ones. And so he says, why do we have friends and why do we like friends? Because friends give us what we need, whether it's personal validation or something tangible. They give us what we, what we need and we know we can call on them and if they have it, they will give it to us. They will support us in that way. That's why we like friends and we don't like enemies. Enemies, you know, seek to take from us or, or at least they don't support us. So we don't like enemies and strangers. We don't know about them, so we don't really care. So he says you have friends, strangers, and enemies. He said, but it, it should not be so. He said, if you really understood why a friend is a friend to you, if you really understood why an enemy is an enemy, because they're not validating you, not giving you what you want. He said you would abandon the notion of enemies. Does anybody have a notion of enemies in our midst? He says if so, then we need to abandon it. Some people do things, bad things, but when our back is pressed against the wall, we'll do those same bad things to somebody else or to some other group, but we'll talk about that group doing it, but we'll do the same thing. So he says that if we see this, we will uproot this notion of friends and enemies and strangers. And once we start working it at, at sloughing that away, he says, we will come to a sweet place, a sweet spot in us where we can embrace all people and just see them caught you know, in their own delusions. It doesn't mean we don't have to work you know, at, at uh, rectifying what is not correct. But he said, the hatred of the person, there's no place for it. 
And that if we were judged according to how we hate others who do certain things, we would be guilty ourselves. So he says, this is the way that lust grows into a habit because we continually lean into our friends and we continually are repulsed by and, and push away from our enemies and because we give no space or credence to the stranger. It says craving grows into a habit because of grasping, uh, and that's a kind of suction, you know, um, which uh, creates an, an illusion of chilliness, aloneness, uh, em uh, emptiness if I don't have it. Not emptiness like in, in the spaciousness of universality, but emptiness uh, like in I'm missing something. I, you know, I need something. And so we grasp on to other people. We grasp on things, you know, to try to uh, uh, compensate uh, for that. He calls it the water of greed. Arrogance grows into a habit because of the abuse which manifests by oppressing others, by cutting people off, by telling people what they can or can't do, by, you know, having a, a kind of, of dominance, like being the general of a place, like uh, thinking I'm the only one that knows and not giving uh, any respect or honor to anybody else's journey, you know. So I have to ask myself, do I have those kinds of tendencies? Uh, then arrogance is what I need to work on. He said that um, arrogance uh, is a, a, it's like a stimulant, uh, and so it it uh, it builds up in us a certain kind of self-importance that people don't want to be around. Oh, here they come, you know. Here's here's Mrs. Know-it-all, Mr. Know-it-all, or you're going to tell us what to do and how to do, you know. And and so sometimes we need to just listen, listen, <laughs> just listen. Don't go away offended. Just listen and then contemplate. Is that me? And we don't have to be embarrassed about it. We don't have to feel, you know, we don't have to, uh, uh, we don't have to feel any kind of way. But just listen. Just listen. And if it is so, then every time that comes up, that habitual tendency of, 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 being the one, you know, who is superior uh, to the other or, or acting superior. It may not even be your intention, you know, but sometimes we do things we don't intend to do. If the action is like if the shoe fits, you know, uh, then the more we bring our attention, our awareness to it, the more we become capable to shift the behavior to something more wholesome. The habit of anger, it grows because of irritation which manifests its stubbornness. Hmm? It's like a man pushed by his obstinacy to avenge a wrong, uh, uh, to avenge a wrong. And, and the Buddha said that inside it creates visions, visions of castrating somebody, of hacking, beheading, chopping, wounding, uh, bludgeoning, at least striking, you know. And so, 
So I have to ask myself, when uh, anger is coming, what? I mean, look at it really clearly, looking at it. And, and what, is its, uh, what is its root? What is its, what is its uh, root and what image is it putting into the mind and to the heart? It said, hence all Buddhists regard hatred as a sharp sword and all bodhisattvas flee from it as far as from their own execution. <laughs> so when we make a mistake, we want somebody to have mercy on us, to forgive us. You know, we don't want to be outed. We don't want to be. No. But we may be quick to do that. And just from habitual tendency. So think of the one who points that out as your kind friend. If you didn't see it. If you did see it. Consider the place that you can come and people say, he's just having an issue today because I know I didn't do anything. You know, maybe I'll just hold him up. May he be well, happy, and peaceful. You know. And if you can hang around and with a calm mind, just putting that into the atmosphere to support him at that time, then that could be useful. If you can't, go someplace else. Don't mix your bad energy with his bad energy and we have an explosion. You know. So I was so grateful a person was in that kind of situation. And so that person just said, you know, I, I needed to go away. I needed to remove myself, so I just did. That is the absolute right action to take. So we need to know what we can do, but by all means, do something. Don't do nothing. The habit of deceitfulness. Deceitfulness grows into a habit because of enticements which manifest as deceit, which in time creates cords that restrain one. So deceitfulness can, can actually seem very, um, uh, very uh, innocent. It means uh, sometimes, you know, we talk about saying kind words instead of saying harsh words. But we have to be really careful with kind words, as careful as we are with harsh words. Because kind words can, can create a kind of setup and an unreal experience and expectation and a kind of conning and uh, being supery, you know, a kind of uh, foppery, a kind of, of uh, it, it's, it's decidedly deceptive. <clears throat> And then we, we become unreal, you know, like, like, you know, like the fake smile, you know, um, always saying a sweet thing, you know, but you have, uh, without realizing that you, you develop an ulterior motive in this just because it's not genuine. And so, so he says that, that it grows into a habit. See the enticement of it. <clears throat> And then it helps us. Now, some people talk about being honest, being brutally honest. You don't have to be brutally honest. You can just be honest. You don't have to be brutal about it. But neither do you have to be enticing. He said, uh, lying grows into a habit because of beguilement, which manifests as, as fraud, um, but it ends in treachery. Now, I was watching this Dharma movie called House of Cards. And in the beginning, they had some aspirations. The reason why I like, I binge sometimes. And the reason I do is because it helps you to see like that 
whole thing takes place over the course of eight years or something like that, or eight or, or yeah, about eight years. But you get to see it, you know, over uh, about 20, 30 minute episodes. Well, I think the show is an hour and we have like 40 minutes of commercial, so maybe 20, 20 minutes, you know. But it helps you to see how fast things escalate and how we, we don't realize that how things are a slippery slope, you know. And sometimes we, we do something like um, innocently and then when we reflect, we're like, well, it wasn't exactly like that. But it was for a good reason. And then we go on a little further. And before we know it, I mean, they started off as people want to change, you know, they want to change the country, good aspirations, good ideas. And now they murder three people in every, in every episode, you know, because the minute something threatens what, you know, the story they've already built, you got to get rid of that person. As soon as they find out something else, you got to kill that one off. And so, you know, and so I see. You know, you can just see how just, and we, sometimes we look at ourselves and we wonder, how did I get here? How did I get here? And so he says that that's the danger. And uh, so he said, Buddhas regard lying as harmful as plundering and killing. And all bodhisattvas avoid it as they would stepping on venomous snakes. Said resentment grows. Resentment grows into a habit because of aversion, which manifests as malice. Aversion, like somebody got something, you know something about it, about them. You don't feel like they deserve to have that, and so there's some resentment. Actually, you think you should have gotten that, and so now I got a double dose of resentment going on. Or maybe uh, they did something, they said something about you. It wasn't true. The Buddha said, if it's, he, he said, people will, will lie on you. People will say things about you. Just don't let it be true. He says, and if it's true, change your ways. I mean, so he gives us ways to work with that. There's no point in, in having resentment about the person who revealed it. There's no point in having resentment because it was an untruth. He said, sometimes we're going to have to suffer being falsely accused. Can we take it? Can we handle it? One has to have confidence in oneself about where they're standing at any given time. This is hard work. This is not easy work to do. But if we are able to bit by bit work with this, we can overcome the pain and suffering that comes when somebody falsely accuses you, or that comes when somebody outs you because you actually did it, or that comes with just knowing you did it, whether anybody knows it or not. And so he says, turn from, from the uh, aversion and just face it. Now, this doesn't mean that everything, you know, you come out and write out your whole list and go house to house. I did this about you. I said that about you. I thought this about you. I, no, not necessarily do that. You have to use your wisdom about what would bring uh, harmony, what would bring peace going forward. And so sometimes you just have to live with what you did. But it's better for you not to go to the person and tell it. If they don't know it, 
no need to bring suffering to them. You know, sometimes we want to do it because we want to get it off our chest. No, you keep it on yours. You know, this is the way that we train. He said, we train. We train ourselves. Um, the habit of wrong views. Wrong views grows into a habit because of misinterpretations, which covers from us thinking that we are a separate self due to form, feeling, consciousness, uh, perception, and thoughts, all the way down to uh, the, you know, the uh, reality of, of a, uh, ego or everything out there being the way I perceive it. In other words, we create our map of reality based not on how things are, but how we are, how we see it, how we understand it. And so he says that, that we have to uh, regard wrong view as an abyss of perversion. Those are tough words. <laughs> as an abyss of perversion. I'm going to write that one down. I'm going to place that one on my dresser because sometimes I have thoughts, you know. And I sometimes I even know, like, probably why you shouldn't think like that. Just let me think about like this way for two more minutes. And then I'm going to put it away because I know it's not right. You know, but we have to discipline ourselves in, in that way. Think of it as the abyss of perversion. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then we have to seek out good counsel, you know. Uh, a lot of times, like, if, if we want to do something that um, we already know is not a good thing, we go and find somebody who gets angrier than us to tell them about it. And then that friend gets doubly angry, angry and now we feel justified. You know, I sought advice. There was a, a, a story in the, uh, in the uh, Majima Nikaya where the person came to the Buddha for advice and he gave him the, the advice, and he didn't like that advice, so he went to his drinking buddies and threw out the same thing. They gave him different advice. He said, yeah, that's the advice I like. You know, so it's like that. The habit of unfairness uh, is because of false accusation, which manifests in slander. So that could be uh, that it has come towards us, and, and from the weight, from the pressure of this unfairness, we start to falter. Or it could be us. You know, falsely accusing someone else, and from the weight and the pressure of the deeds we do, we falter. Doesn't matter whether it's coming toward us or whether it's moving away from us. But he says, understand that in this life, in this world, there will be unfairness. There is just no way to avoid it. So we can't fight every single thing. We have to pick our battle. And he said that the more we develop the capacity to not fight, he said a gentleman does not fight. The more we develop that capacity, the more unfairness will lose its hold and its grip on us. And we'll be able to tolerate a slight. We'll be able to, you know, to suffer something that in the past we couldn't handle. We get totally discombobulated. But we'll find a greater strength in being able to, to stand and to hold ourselves when things are not going that good for us. And we won't have to run from people. We won't have to be in isolation, you know, to stay peaceful. 
We can learn gradually to be in the midst, and when it's too much, we can step away, but after a while, we don't even have to be away. You know, we can just see something for what it is. How wonderful that is that. And I'll finish these last two in two minutes. The disputing grows into a habit because of too much talk. That was a really short one. Too much talk. And he says part of that is the more we talk, the more we start uh, uh, by uh, natural, unenlightened um, thinking, the more we start concealing our own deficiencies. And, uh, and then I think the final one, if I'm on 10, uh, oh, yeah, so that's the 10. I'm going to dismiss on time because I want you to stay until we finish. And so it's like this, thinking about um, what truly causes me dukkha and its pervasiveness is what is fundamental for each one of us. So I'd like to close with these two passages from one of uh, Amy's Dharma contemplations. He said, um, well, these three, says, as a bee gathers nectar and moves on without harming the flower, its color, or its fragrance, just so should a sage walk through a village. He said, do not consider the faults of others or what they have or haven't done. Consider, rather, what you yourself have or haven't done. Just as from a heap of flowers many garlands can be made, so you, with your mortal life, should also do many skillful things. Thank you for coming today. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you and no danger. May you always be able to meet with the inevitable difficulties of life. Been working hard just to change your ways. Stopping all the hateful things you used to say. Are you quiet or is it just delayed because you're still caught in stinking thinking? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.